Welcome to Season 2 of We Are Here, sponsored by CrowdStrike. In this season, Ron and Chris focus on diversity, equity, inclusion, and allyship in technology and cybersecurity. In part one of the season, they speak to a critically acclaimed author, speaker, and consultant, Minda Hartz, who is saying as clear as anyone, we are here. Glad to be back again. We are honored to have Minda Hartz join us in this episode. Minda is the founder and CEO of The Memo LLC and is an award-winning and best-selling author of The Memo, What Women of Color Need to Know to Secure a Seat at the Table. We're also excited to learn more about your new book coming out, Minda, but we'll save that for the conversation. Wanted to say welcome to the show. Thank you guys for having me. Happy to be here. Big fans. <laughs> we are so happy to have you here. This has been a long time coming. We belong to a mastermind group together, and we quickly became family. And I just want to say that Minda is actually one of the reasons that we are here actually came out. I was I felt the weight of the sheer magnitude of the project that we were putting together, and I wanted to get it right. And Minda helped me along the way and helped that thing to come out. So first of all, thank you so much for that. But for the folks that don't know who you are just yet, would love to hear a little bit about your background and what you're doing today. Yeah, thank you so much. And I'm glad that I could be helpful because you have been helpful to love those mastermind groups. But (laughs) my name is Minda Hartz. And I started my career in corporate America nonprofit for 15 years before I went out on my own. And I was a consultant in a fundraising capacity. And I was always the only one, the only black woman, the only woman of color, and sometimes the only woman in the room. And when you're in those certain situations for so long, it becomes isolating at times and you start to tell yourself that this is just the way it it's probably going to be for a black woman or woman of color in the workplace dealing with some of these racial inequalities. And it wasn't until 2012 during Trayvon Martin's untimely death that I started to think about what would it mean for black and brown lives to matter in the workplace. And I started to interrogate and investigate what that meant for me and how I could make the workplace better than I found it. I didn't figure that out until about 2015 uh, when I started my company, The Memo, really helping black and brown women, women of color, making sure that we thrive in the workplace and not just survive. And what was it about your your personal history? Was it professional or personal that really put you on this mission to really be the voice of people around the world that were underrepresented or marginalized? Like, what was that inciting incident for you? Yeah, there, you know, there were so many along the way, but I think the defining kind of like that bones thug crossroad moment, you know, <laughs> you're just like, um, <laughs> where I have to do something. I, it was, uh, in 2013 actually. And I was experiencing a lot of racial aggression inside the workplace. And at first I tried to tell myself something that many of us say, Oh, they don't mean any harm. You know, that's probably not what they meant. And you, you know, you start to question maybe if you took it the wrong way, but at the end of the day, we all know 
regardless of how you identify when you're being disrespected, when you're not being treated equitably, that should be table stakes. And it was in this environment where people would see things happening inside the the workplace, inside the boardroom that were very, very toxic. And instead of showing up or being an ally, people would come to me after the fact, be like, oh, Minda, I can't believe you just dealt with that. You know, you're so strong. And I found some weird comfort in that. But but after a while, I realized that I deserve an equitable workplace. I deserve a place where I'm not racially aggressed every single day on the hour at times. And what would that look like? And I was at my breaking point, to be honest, very long story short, I, I went into the most senior woman at the company and I had a conversation you know, advocating for myself, I realized that I really had to talk about this. I can't sweep it under the rug anymore. And she said to me straight up, you know, we're happy that you're here, but this person that's causing this harm to you, you know, she's been here a long time. So you need to decide if this is the place you want to work or not. And it was in that moment that I realized that um, maybe if my skin color had been different. Maybe she would have cared more. And I thought how many other people of color feel the same way at times. And I don't want to leave the workplace the way I found it. I want to make it better where we are appreciated and celebrated. And I know that there are those spaces. And so I wanted to give narrative to to those inequalities. Such a powerful thing to not only go through that and overcome it, but even share your story and ultimately write a book on the topic. I think that, you know, these things happen too often and they go unsaid too often. I know that for me, there's been times where I've been questioned myself like, hey, you know, is is everyone being treated equally, especially man versus woman? Like are, are women being treated equally in the workplace and even being paid equally in the workplace? What are some of the surprises that you found along the journey of writing these books and kind of going deeper into the subject? Yeah, it's crazy because uh, many of us have experienced uh, the trauma, right, and the inequalities. And uh, again, because we've been experiencing it so long for most of our lives, many of us that you just feel like it's normal. We start to normalize it on on both sides, really. And so I just thought there has to be a space where the workplace works for everybody. And if we don't talk about the inequalities, then we can't get to a solution. And when I started talking about this, I back in 2015, it, I wasn't, you know, met with a, a party and confetti, you know, <laughs> people were like, no, these things aren't happening in the workplace. But what I realized was, I don't need anyone else to affirm me. I know that these things are happening. And I and as I started to talk about my story, then I found that it was other people's story, right? Because often we're suffering in silence and isolation because we're one of few or one of the only. So we don't have anyone to talk to about it. And so you think it's just happening to you. And and once I started putting myself out there and talking about it, I realized that there were so many you know, women uh, of color, but also men who were experiencing this too. And I realized, you know what? We have to get to the bottom of this because we should all have a career that we can do our best work and not be racially aggressed uh, in the workplace. But what I found was that there were too many of us experiencing this, regardless of the industry, and enough is enough. You know, I'm glad you mentioned that. And and that's something I want to ask you about is when you wrote the memo and it received the tension that it got, when you started to receive those messages from people all around the world that were feeling that same way, what did that really mean to you to know that you were talking about something that people cared about and that something that they wanted to improve in society that I know you don't need that affirmation, but it, it had to have like 
done something for you to say like, wow, I'm doing something that might make a difference for somebody. So could you tell us a, a story about how that, that meant to you and, and maybe something specific that happened that might be interesting? Yeah, you know, it, it is very humbling because when I put this out into the world, what a lot of people don't know is, yes, it's become a best-selling award-winning book, but when it first came out, it was not that. And, um, and it took time. And really, um, at the time when my book was sold, there were five major publishers, and four of them said no to my book because they felt like this wasn't a topic of conversation that people were experiencing. This wasn't important. But one said yes. And they said, wow, I never considered that this might be an issue that some people experience. And just again, to always have to have people question if your experiences are valid, if your experiences are harmful or hurtful. And putting myself out there in the way and being vulnerable with the memo, receiving, I mean, hundreds, probably thousands of messages where black and brown women would say, you know what, I feel like somebody is seeing me for the very first time. I felt like in my 20 years, 30 years, 40 years career, I'm finally being able to read a book where I can shake my head up and down and somebody's talking to me. I didn't realize how much others needed it. I knew I needed it, right? Uh, Toni Morrison said, write the book you want to read. And I wish that I had had that. And I felt so honored that others could find some peace and some comfort and some tools to be able to move forward. But the one thing that really sticks out to me is I was speaking right before the pandemic, a Fortune 500 company. And at the end, there was one woman who stayed behind. um, And she was probably maybe 30, 40 years older than me. And she comes up to me and she says, Minda, I just want to apologize to you. And I said, you know, why? And she's like, I should have wrote this book for you. Thank you for writing it for this generation and the next generation. And that did I mean, I, I could have cried wow. um, a Justin Timberlake River at that <laughs> moment. <laughs> I didn't, you know, you just don't realize what people need until you start to really engage and, and talk about certain things. I'm loving the music references. I mean, it's helping me like really <laughs> visualize the story and, and everything that you're going through. One of the things that you said that really caught my attention was the word trauma. And this is really a word that I'm still getting to learn more about, especially when it comes to workplace trauma. What are some of the examples there? And what is the story that you can share with us about how someone could be traumatized in the workplace? I think when we're in it, because we haven't used the word trauma to to really equate it to racialized aggression in the workplace, we, we might not even have even known that it was traumatic, right? Because it's just been so normalized in many spaces. But for example, um, my first manager in corporate America, I had burnt orange fingernail polish on. And he said, you people love your bright colors. And he joked around for 15 minutes about how black people like bright colors. And I didn't feel like I could say anything. I didn't think I could do anything because I knew that if I said something, then maybe I would be perceived as angry or aggressive, or I took it the wrong way, or I'm being a victim. And so I learned at an early age to silence myself that, oh, okay, well, that's just Tom, right? And when you go through that every single day, several times a day for years, for five minutes, whatever it is, you always remember those moments, those things that people said to you where you know that they wouldn't have said it to somebody else. And that's that trauma. I don't think we realize that You know, um, Dr. Martin Luther King said, racism distorts the personality. If you are a person of color and you've spent any amount of time in the workplace, then you know that those racial slights, those discrimination practices, they distort who your authentic self 
is supposed to be, right? And I realized that if we don't find ways to address that trauma, then, you know, the people who we go home to, the people that we work with, they don't get the best of us because we aren't right within and not because we don't want to be, but because of the environments that many of us have been exposed to. And so I realized that that is not okay. And we have to talk about it just like we talk about sexual harassment or any other form of discrimination in the workplace. So with all this digital transformation that's happened over the last year and change with all all the stuff with COVID, a lot of folks are moving to remote work. And it seems like in some ways that can only make some of the situations worse because instead of pulling people together, now people feel more isolated than ever. Some people don't have a bubble that they can depend on and they really feel alone. So what are some of the things you've learned through talking to all of these people around the world about bringing folks together, even if they're remote? Have you done anything in, in that regard? Well, it's interesting that you asked that question, Chris, because recently there was a report that came out. They um, surveyed black employees over the last few months, and 54% of black employees said that they felt like they belonged at their companies for the first time working from home. And when you drill down into it, the reason why they felt that way is because they didn't have to experience the daily or multiple microaggressions or macroaggressions that they were experiencing in the workplace. So even though, you know, you don't have that same water cooler moments that you might have had before, people feel like they have a little more peace, a little more freedom, because now they're free just to do the work, right? They don't have to worry about all the office politics. You know, what does my face look like? What does my hair look like? You know, all of the different things that many of us, you know, how is my tone? How am I coming across that it's really about the work. And so for me, I've really been thinking about that psychological safety that, you know, we can't tell people to come back to work if it wasn't safe for them to begin with. And so that's where we're kind of wrestling with right now. But what I what I will say is I'm really encouraged that people are starting to feel like they can articulate what psychological safety means for them. And I think that's where the magic in the making a better workplace is possible when we can focus on that. That's pretty interesting that 54% of people feel that way. And it almost makes me think that maybe when we do go back to the office, if that day ever comes, that organizations and companies can do a reset. They can finally start to address some of these issues and, and make it a safer place to work emotionally and psychologically for their employees. What are some things that you can think of that would be helpful or things to chew on for organizations if they were to open back up? Yeah. Thank you, Ron. You know, so one of the things that I keep seeing, and maybe you both have seen it too, is that people keep saying, let's return back to normal. But I'm pushing to say, let's return back to better. Mm. We know that the workplace wasn't working for everybody before the pandemic. So why would we go back to that? Right. So it's really asking the right questions. What do people need to do the best work of their careers? And I think that oftentimes leaders and managers, they make decisions based off of their bottom lines and what they're thinking about and what's comfortable and convenient for them. But, you know, it's our workforce, it's our talent that we need to make sure they have the tools to do the best work. So asking them what they need, right? Not just throwing out some arbitrary date, be back on this day, but what do you need so that you feel comfortable and supported coming back, right? Do we need to do five working days? Can we do three right? Do we need to have meetings on Mondays because we know people are burnt out working from home? So I think we really have to, I would encourage our leaders and managers to ask better questions of their talent, asking what they need. And when you're doing these surveys, make sure you're being transparent to share the information, share the data. And if you find that 
um, statistics like 54%, if you do have black and brown employees working for you, having conversations with them because you want them to be set up for success when they return back to the office. Or maybe you say, you know what, maybe our environment is not helpful and psychologically safe at this time. So we're going to make sure that we do what needs to be done so that when those employees come back, they feel supported and they feel seen and that it's not just lip service. So I think that a lot of this is really important. And then the last thing I'll say is I believe in having some on-site wellness programs for people, be it therapy or group coaching or conflict resolution, because let's be honest, even though most of us have been working from home, not everybody has experienced working from home the same. So a lot of people are bringing, you know, various experiences back into the workplace. And I think there needs to be some support because a lot of different personalities. Yeah. One thing that i constantly come back to is this concept of bring your whole self to work. I hear it from different people in different organizations and different industries. But every time I hear that, I kind of shake my head a bit because even with all of this, like bring your whole self to work, I still feel like there are times where I've had to wear a mask in my past. Other people that I know feel like they had to put on a mask when they go to the workplace. And one of my good friends, Charles Nwatu, used to talk about you know, building these these organizations or, or having these relationships where we could just have those moments to take that mask off and really, truly be ourselves like wholeheartedly. But I feel like we're still a ways away from people being able to like really, truly bring their whole self to work. Of course, being professional, but to be themselves completely, it still feels like there's some apprehension of going that far into that. Is that something you've dealt with? Absolutely. I'm glad you bring it up because, you know, that is the buzzword, authenticity, right? Bring your authentic self. But what really people in the dominant majority are saying is bring the version of yourself that we're most comfortable with. Right. <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. Like, and, and that's the authentic version that we want you to bring. And so I think that what we have to ask ourselves is what versions of ourselves do we need to bring so that we can do our best work, right? So some people, you know, if you grew up in a black household like I did, we I grew up being told, don't tell everybody your business, right? <laughs> so, 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 so I come into the workplace like, I don't want you to know too much about me, right? But you know, you have to build relationships. So I say, what are the pieces that I need to bring of myself to do my best work, to build the right strategic relationships, those sorts of things. And then I hold on to that because I think for so long we've been in what W.E.B. Du Bois says, you know, double consciousness, seeing mm-hmm. ourselves through the eyes of someone else. And so I think it's important for us to sit with ourselves and say, who do we want to be in the workplace? Who do we need to be? Right. And finding those spaces that celebrate those parts of us. And so I think that's part of the psychological safety that we can now we're, we remind ourselves that we are the asset. And if this environment is not conducive to us bringing those pieces of ourselves that we need to do our best work, then giving ourselves permission to either create our own tables or find those environments that support that. But I think that because we've been conditioned to look at it from a dominant majority perspective of what authenticity means, many of us don't even know who that is for ourselves. And so getting comfortable with figuring that out. Lauren said, how you going to win if you ain't right within? It starts with us. Absolutely. And, you know, for the people that have been burnt through just trying to be themselves in the workplace, I think your next book actually gets on to this topic a little bit, how to heal from these types of things. Uh, What can you share about your new book that's coming out? Yes, I'm so excited. It's um, I call it like the big sister to my first book, 
the memo. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's called Right Within. And again, I don't think we talk a lot about the racial trauma that many of us have experienced in the workplace. We just pack it up and keep keep it moving. That's what we've done uh, for as a, I guess, a survival mechanism. But in this new book, I really talk about the compounding impact of mental health challenges, the pandemic, and then the racial aggression that happens. A recent study came out and said that women and people of color are at greater risk for depression and anxiety right now than the rest of the population because racial trauma at work shouldn't be part of that equation, right? So I offer in this new book ways to cope, process, and prevent further damage from happening. So tools to make sure that when those things do happen, you have the right language, you have the right support to be able to move through it. Because just because your colleagues get some unconscious bias training doesn't mean the harm won't continue, right? But we will have tools in our toolkit to be able to affirm ourselves and decide how we want to move forward. And then lastly, um, a really big piece of the book is for managers, because I believe in order to create a psychologically safe environment at work, our managers have a real responsibility to make sure that um, they're creating an equitable and supportive team, uh, making sure that those toxic behaviors of people that work on their team are not encouraged, but um, they're removing obstacles for their you know, employees not creating more. One thing that I want to talk about a bit is the the changes that you've seen as far as dealing with trauma, as far as you talked about wellness centers and corporations. I think that's something that's so underutilized and we really need help there. But what are some of the strides you've seen companies make in order to make their employees feel more safe and secure and just give them that psychological safety that I think we all desire? It's imperative uh, because, you know, people say, well, uh, let's talk about the future of work, but we're actually in the future of work and the decisions that we make right now will dictate who makes it to the finish line and who doesn't in business. And so the ones that I've seen do it right are the ones who last year, you know, during 2020, when a lot of companies were making these declarations for equity and equality, the ones that have actually made true on their promises, right? Because if you have you know, diverse workplace, and they heard some of these declarations that you made, we're looking to see, does the About Us pages look the same that it did a year ago? Or has there been change, right? Has the leadership, have companies been doing pay transparency to make sure everybody's making the same amount for equal work? And so the companies that are doing that, that are moving the needle forward, I know one company, for example, Starbucks, they are tied their bonuses to diversity metrics. So, right. So we don't allow, you know, not allowing our managers and leaders to opt into equity. It's mandatory. And I think that's where I'd like to see more companies move toward. I was just listening to a TED talk by Janet Stovall talking about how leaders should really have metrics associated with diversity, equity, and inclusion, like you're like you're mentioning, but almost from the perspective of a salesperson. If a salesperson doesn't hit their quota, they might get a stern talking to, or they might even lose their job. And I think that's an interesting way to look at diversity, equity, and inclusion. But one of the things that I've learned by just doing my own research is those three concepts are different. Like they all mean different things, diversity, equity, and inclusion. What are your thoughts on like how we're tackling this challenge today? Like a lot of organizations have one or two people focused on those three pillars. Is that enough? And is that the right direction? 
Yeah, you know, I I don't think it's enough. And I think the issue is oftentimes a lot of companies will say, well, we just hired a chief diversity officer or we have some employee resource groups or some business resource groups. Now we check the box and we can move on. Everything is solved. But you know what? Everybody's job description should entail being a diversity officer. (laughs) That should be the the uh, secretary's job, that should be the you know janitor's job, that should also be the CEO, that should be the managing director. Everybody should be held to a standard of equity. And if we're not demonstrating that, then maybe this isn't the place for them. But I think we say, hey, you chief diversity officer or whomever, you take on all of the workplace issues. And it can't be that. Everyone, success is not a solo sport. We need everybody involved. It has to be everybody's issue, right? And I think that once it's embedded from the get-go, then you make equitable solutions, not doing it after the fact, like an asterisk, right? Or having mm-hmm. one person dedicated to it. And the other thing is for those, for example, some companies have employee resource groups. If mm-hmm. those resource groups don't have support financially to make meet their goals and, and make sure that everybody is supported in the group, then this is what what is the group there for, right? So I think that, again, there has to be some functions to make sure that equity is embedded in everything. Because diversity, that means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. But if I am the only one at your company, do I still feel like I'm supported and heard? I think that's a different conversation. A hundred percent. And I can't begin to even sing the praises of employee resource groups, especially like you said, the ones that are funded. Whenever these people are reaching out to you, you touch the lives of so many people, including my own. Is there a story that comes to mind, a success story of where you've helped somebody through some particularly dicey situations and came out on the other end, a better person or even in a better space? Yeah. You know, I know these topics are tough, but I I did write the memo and my next book, Right Within, as a way to move forward, right? Because sometimes we don't know what it looks like because we may not have ever seen it or we've never worked in an environment that isn't toxic. And, you know, I hear a lot of stories from people just saying, thank you for reminding me that I have a voice, right? Because many of us um, would tell ourselves that we don't have a voice, but we all have a voice. We just have to decide how we want to use it. And that's called self-advocacy. And I hear from so many women who email me and say, thank you for reminding me that I had a voice. I just have to use it. And I get so much joy because self-advocacy is part of self-care, right? When you can articulate to your manager, to your colleagues, what good looks like for you, then you can actually start to have a real conversation to move things forward. And I think that that's the piece. Many of us are scared to have those difficult conversations and be courageous listeners. And when I hear those stories, Chris, I just get so excited because we all have a voice, right? And it's okay to let people know what good looks like for you. Minda, thank you so much for hopping on the mics with us. I know that there's someone that's listening right now that wants to be supportive of people in the workplace that are underrepresented. I know there are people that are underrepresented that feel like they're struggling in their environment and they want to make a way for themselves and they want to be an example for others. What is that one piece of advice that you could give that would really touch everybody and make the workplace better, make our communities better, and ultimately make the world better. Thank you for having me again. Uh, One thing that I put on my computer is the word courage. And the definition of courage is the ability to do something that frightens one. I would ask you, 
Who are you willing to be courageous for? Courage looks a lot of different ways. Courage might be showing up when someone's racially aggressed. Courage might be saying, hey, I'm not going to fill this position until we have a diverse slate of candidates. Courage might look like, well, I know that one of my employees are not being paid equitably. Let me go talk to HR. Think about what that small act of courage is going to be so that somebody can be a beneficiary of your courage. We have all been beneficiary of someone's courage and we got to pay it forward. It's truly an honor to have you on the podcast and to talk about these topics because I feel like there isn't enough people talking about it. And I feel like the more we talk about these topics, the more we can move forward as a society. For the folks that want to stay up to date with you, get all of your books, definitely get the memo and also write within, what are the best ways that people can do that? You can go to mindahearts.com. All my information is there and you can connect with me on whatever your favorite social platform is. Excellent. We'll also be sure to drop all of your social and your website in the show notes for everyone to check out. We highly encourage it. Thank you so much, Minda, and we'll see everyone next time. Mm -hmm.